Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske, and a happy Friday to you. Maybe you had a good week, but you still have nothing on Cori Bush. She's a nurse, pastor, activist, and single mom, best known for leading protests through the streets of Ferguson and the city of St. Louis. And on Tuesday, Cori Bush scored a major political upset. She beat Congressman William Lacey Clay Jr. in the Democratic primary. So long as she can win the general election in November, which is almost a sure thing in this dark blue district, she's headed to Washington, D.C. And she joins us today. Bush, congratulations and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So the activist Kayla Reed tweeted on Tuesday night, Cori Bush took down a political dynasty on her second try. She ended a 50-year stronghold. Do you understand what that means? What does it mean to you, Cori? It means that we'll finally see some change, um, that regular everyday people will have visibility, will have a voice, will have um, a chance to um, really get some things, you know, that we've been asking for for so long. As just one of those people myself, you know, I can advocate and I can fight for it. But just thinking about what I've gone through myself and what I've seen others in the community go through. When you say we can get some of these things that, that we've been asking for and, and fighting for, yes. what sort of things do you have in mind there? So first of all, um, health care. We, we've seen with COVID-19, what happens when a community, when there are a lot of people in the community who don't have access to health care or who have access but don't have the money for the actual care. Mm -hmm. um, so bringing home health care uh, to each and every person, regardless of, you know, job status or um, socioeconomic status, underlying condition um, by way of the Medicare for all. Also, um, a $15 an hour federal minimum wage, you know, people working off of starvation wages, you know, that's not going to help pull so many people that we have living in poverty right now out. I know what that's like. I've been there, you know, um, and so we need a $15 an hour minimum wage. We need um, to reduce crime, but that's how, that's a part of reducing crime is making sure that we address poverty head on. Uh, also, um, putting reinvesting in our school systems. Uh, we were all, some of our school systems, our, our school districts were already so underfunded. Um, and then COVID-19 really highlighted though that issue mm -hmm. uh, just thinking about children that needed Chromebooks that didn't get them, you know, right away because we didn't have the money. Uh, we have to do, you know, now we have to do some other things. And one of those things is why, you know, moving money from the federal education system and putting that money into private prisons, I think was the wrong move. We are over it, over um, incarcerating and under educating our communities. So those are just a few of the things. So hearing some of those things, those sound like things that if asked directly, Lacey Clay would have probably said, yeah, I'm on board for all all of that. He also had that seniority in Washington, D.C. How will you be able to achieve some of these things when he wasn't able to do it? Well, I don't believe it's that he wasn't able to do it. He and I are two different people um, the, in the same way that I showed up during Ferguson more than four, doing that movement for more than 400 days while working a full time job and taking care of two children, um, putting my life and livelihood on the line like so many others. That was a choice that I made. There was a that was a choice to continue to fight because the fight would bring about saving lives. That was a choice that I made. Um, and so I will con I've continued to do that same work for the last six years and in Congress. Congress, that same energy that I had doing that work, that's the same energy that I'm going to bring to Congress. And so um, I won't be 
boxed into what Congressman Clay didn't do because the thing is his seniority didn't touch, it didn't touch down to regular people like me. I'm somebody that lived out of my car with two babies. I'm somebody that worked low wage. You know, I'm somebody that's been uninsured that had um, a lot of student debt that I have since paid off, that had high taxes that I've since paid off. I've struggled a lot. And so I know the things that we are going to going through. I'm a victim of crime. I'm a survivor of sexual assault and, sec and, and, and domestic violence. I know a lot of the struggles we have. And so that is what I'm taking to Congress. And so whether it's seniority or not, I'm going to fight this with that same energy. So Lacey Clay's father um, was a firebrand activist in some ways. Um, reading about what he was up to, it reminds me a lot about some of the stuff you did. Do you feel mm -hmm. any sadness over ending this 52-year dynasty that was started by somebody who, who really began just like you began, fighting for civil rights on the streets of St. Louis? Oh, no, not sad at all, because I don't think that it's ending. I don't think that 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 his legacy of the work that he that um, that uh, Clay Sr. did as an activist. I think that this is just the next step to it, because uh, Lacey Clay was not an activist. And he said that, mm -hmm. you know, but with me being an activist, this is just an extension. This is just a, the torch being passed to the to the next one that's going to carry on in that same way. We've been missing that for so long. We need that. And when we think about the late rep, uh, John Lewis and the and 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 coming up into Congress in that same tradition, that thing is needed. So I'm not, we're not, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, disrespecting or reducing any of that work at all. This is the next step. It's the continuation. We can't let that type of passion and fire and drive die. Mm -hmm. Now you first ran against uh, Lacey Clay two years ago, and you lost yes. by it was, it was almost twenty points. Twenty points. Yeah, a lot of us <laughs> thought that race would be closer than it was. But it wasn't. Um, what do you think yeah. was different about your candidacy this year? Uh, so starting, I mean, starting out, we had a lot more name recognition just because we were on the ballot, you know, same mm -hmm. race, you know. Um, and then the film that I'm in, Knocked Down the House, you know, uh, re uh, just did really well. Um, right now, we've just been nominated for an Emmy, you know. So uh, so that has helped because when I started knocking doors uh, for, for this this uh, race, people were like, oh, I, I saw you on, you know, I saw you on um, in the film, oh, wow. you know, and so people were like, yeah, so people would say, you know, I thought that you were just like this mean protester, but when I watched this movie, it, you know, I saw something different, and so that helped out a lot. Also, um, I was a 2020 um, national surrogate for Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, and so that gave me a lot more visibility, it, it opened some other doors, and so that increased, uh, it helped to increase fundraising, and um, it helped to build a, a bigger team. And um, the fundraising really helped because we were able to then get on television, have um, radio ads on many different stations. We had the digital ad, highway billboards, roadway uh, signs. You know, we were able to do, we sent postcards and mailers, all of those things we didn't get to do the first time around. Yeah, that can make a huge difference. I think it's interesting, though, that you said, um, you know, when you were going door to door talking to people, they said, oh, I thought you were this mean protester. Do you think that's yeah. how you were, were perceived somewhat before this, this film? help to show people your more human side. In real life, you're such a pleasant person, which I think people who interact <laughs> yeah. with you tend to say, but I guess people didn't know you that way. Yeah, they didn't know me. They just, people just you know, just went by what they've seen on TV is that protesters are, you know, especially at that time, you know, when we were mm -hmm. protesting during Ferguson and then kind of even um, a little bit during Stockley, people just felt like, some people felt like we were, we, we wouldn't, you know, we, we wouldn't 
listen to anyone. You know, we were just being mean and just trying to hold, you know, shut down highways. And they just didn't understand, you know, why we were doing what we were doing. And then it was out of a place of wanting to see our communities changed and, and that Black Lives Matter. Do you think your victory in some ways signifies the more widespread acceptance of this message that you've been marching on for years? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, we worked so hard to lay the foundation, not knowing that that's what we were doing, but we worked so hard in 2014 and 2015 um, and then, you know, on to 2017. But now, uh, you know, it's so much easier. Like we didn't have to build that. And part of it is because we continued to organize like we never went away. You know, we started to organize in other areas and, you know, but we continue to do this work. And so people have seen the longevity. You know, people have seen that we have stick and stay, you know, that Corey shows up, that Corey will fight for people that don't look like her, that don't have the same um, issues that she has. And, you know, people people have seen that and they know that they can count count on me to champion issues um, if it's going to be to their benefit. And so that has helped even with the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor protests that helped that took me off of my campaign, you know, several, you know, a lot, you know, trying to organize and lead those protests along with expect us. But it had to be done because I'm about saving a life today. Like that is the difference. I want to have change now. I want to do what I can now instead of waiting for everything to be incremental. Susan, it was more important for you to be out there protesting against those deaths and the police brutality than to be out there campaigning. You made that choice. Yeah, made the choice. So I I thought it was very interesting. Um, You actually did better in many majority white districts than you did in black ones. Do you think those people were voting for your agenda? Do you think this was a vote against Lacey Clay? What do you think was driving your big support in some of these majority white districts? Yeah, I think some of it is just you know, wanting to see a black woman lead in Congress, you know, wanting to see um, a woman lead in Congress, because in this district, you know, we've never had a woman, Mm -hmm. you know, in the seat, you know, what's that 172, 173 years, never a woman, you know, so I think that that was part of it. Um, And then just the idea that we could make history by me being the first um, black woman to go to Congress to represent Missouri. uh, People wanted to be a part of that. Plus, they, a lot of people just like my message and they like the fact that the core of my message is just seeing equity and justice for everyone. And I don't waver on on that, you know, and, and some people are just looking for somebody that's just going to finally fight for all people. So I read an old interview with Lacey Clay's father. This is Congressman Bill Clay, and this was from decades ago. But he was accused of ignoring his white suburban constituents and then fighting mostly for his black constituents. And he said, I have no intentions or pretensions of representing all of the people. How do you feel about that? Do you plan to represent all of the people in your district? We have different missions. I mean, I'm the work that I do is about my mission. And so maybe that was his mission, but it's we we're different people, you know, and it's a different time. My mission as a woman of faith, I'm, you know, as a um, an ordained and consecrated pastor, you know, someone who loves the Lord, you know, my mission is to love um, is to love humanity mm-hmm. and to make sure that I can do whatever I can to um, to help make the lives of people better. 
And so if that, regardless of who, what you look like and where you're from, you know, I want to help you if you have, if you have a need. Um, but because my community, the black community um, has gone without for so much, we've had so many, we've just had, um, the, you know, the, the disparities are great. The problems, the issues are great. Systematic racism is huge. Institutionalized racism affects us so much on a daily basis. I'm fighting there first. I'm fighting for our brown community that has been, that have been pushed back, our children in cages. I'm fighting for that, our LGBT community and all that they're going through, through with trans people being murdered. Um, you know, so that that's where um, that's where I am. People that are marginalized, disenfranchised, under-resourced. That's where I have to start. So we asked our listeners today on social media before you were even on if they had any questions for you. And boy, people already have a long list of what they want you to work on. I, I feel for you. You're going you're gonna to have to do a lot here. Um, just a couple of these I did want to ask you about if this is something that, that's on your radar, if you see any, any solutions here. Mary asked on Facebook, what can be done to deal with the upcoming eviction and homelessness crisis? I know this is something that is dear to your heart. Yes, it is. Uh, so I have already said, even though I can't do anything, of course, about it really right now mm -hmm. um, until I actually take the seat. But um, once I do take the seat, one thing that I am, um, I will be proposing. Um, first, I'll be standing alongside other Congress members who are already proposing. Um, so one thing is a $2,000 a month universal basic income for all people over the age of 16 with the $500 per child um, being added um, to, the, to families. Um, and then that would be retroactive and um, it would also last for one full year. Um, and then also a real moratorium on rent, on, cancel, on, on rent, mm -hmm. um, a real uh, uh, making sure that sh utility shutoffs are canceled, you know, during this entire period. Um, and then not use it. Some people have said, well, if you get if you give people two thousand dollars a month, you have to, you know, push back on social programs. We'll take the money from there. No, I'm talking about putting more money into social programs because we need we need our food pantries and we need, you know, um, job placement programs and all of that to be um, well funded during this time. So put more money there, um, not take it away. Also putting more money into education. We have to go back. Those dollars, those federal dollars that were pulled from the federal education system and put into private prisons, we need that money back and we need it now. Um, when COVID-19 hit the area, you know, and around the country, some school districts weren't able to provide like Chromebooks right away to make sure that students could continue with their learning. Not every child has, you know, access to a computer um, at home, you know, plus the Wi-Fi. And, um, and then some children needed tutors because it's a difference learning online versus being in a classroom. Some students that were doing really well didn't do so well um, uh, with the online learning. So making sure that we are innovative and we do things differently to make sure we set our children, our students, all of them up for success and then pushing that Medicaid, Medicare for all. Then one more uh, that we have time for here. Matt on Twitter asks, how about a sweet federal earmark of some of that rural highway money to get us a north-south <laughs> metro? Like, there's obviously a lot on your agenda that you'd like to spend money on. Is that at all part of it? Um, I'll definitely look into it. I, the, that is something that I have been um, paying attention to, and I just don't understand why we're still here um, not having transporta public transportation the way that, um, that we need it. And so um, we need a link that we need a metro link that's going to serve, um, really serve the community. So I'm definitely, you know, that is it's on the radar. Now, how I don't I, I'm not sure about that yet, but it's on the radar. So one last question for you, Corey, and that is it's a big one, but 
but um, <laughs> I just have to ask, what does success look like to you going forward as, as you contemplate what is likely, almost certainly going to be a victory here in November? Um, what would you consider success in, in the halls of Congress? Uh, people not having to struggle the way that I've had to struggle in my life. Mm -hmm. So people not having to work for $7 an hour and still take care of two children, people not having to, um, we reducing childhood asthma in our communities by making sure that we are holding um, our, uh, holding these companies accountable for what they're doing to our environment, um, making sure that all of our people have health care, you know, regardless of, you know, um, their personal situations, everybody has it and they continue you to have it for a lifetime, uh, making sure our small businesses um, are funded, building North City and North County, making sure um, that we that we build home ownership, um, reducing, uh, you know, doing better with recidivism rates. Um, and uh, those are just, just a few of the things, reducing crime, you know, reducing crime and connecting people to real opportunity. Um, seeing St. Louis smile, Mm. Seeing St. Louis smile is like huge to me. <laughs> and that might be the biggest challenge of all, but <laughs> but you do have a lot of energy. I can certainly hear it in your voice and, and we've all seen it as you've run this race. So Corey Bush, thank you so much for joining us today and, and yes. good luck as you dive into trying to achieve yes. some of these things. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. We do need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll discuss the Clay family's legacy with some reporters who've covered them closely. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. When Cori Bush won the Democratic primary last Tuesday, she didn't just take down an incumbent. She also laid claim to a seat that's been held by the same family for 52 years. It's a family with a remarkable story, both in D.C. and in St. Louis. And joining us today with some perspective on the Clay family, both the father and son, are two journalists. And the first is Tim Poor. He was a reporter at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch from 1986 to 2009. The paper's Washington correspondent for five years, and then he spent a decade as the paper's national and foreign editor. So, Tim Poor, welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. So I talked a bit with Corey Bush um, a little bit about Bill Clay's legacy, but this is just such a remarkable life uh, this man has lived. For our younger listeners, who was Bill Clay and, and how did he get his start? Well, Bill Clay was uh, the congressman from the 1st District uh, starting in 1968, and before that he was an alderman and a committeeman. And uh, he really uh, lasted a long time in Congress and in St. Louis. Even while he was in Congress, he kept his committee man's position. And so he was a real power. His real power was in St. Louis in terms of uh, choosing who uh, ran, who didn't run. Vince Shamo, a former mayor, called him the most powerful politician in Missouri. Hmm. Uh, and uh, his power really extended uh, throughout the state and uh, really surpassed uh, what he was able to do in, in, in Washington, actually. But he, he certainly kept on, kept a huge role of uh, local power that his son did, did not do. So he, you did a remarkable long-form story about Bill Clay in 1998. This story is such a great read. And you quoted from a speech he gave early on in his career as an activist. Uh, quote, there's nothing wrong with St. Louis that couldn't be cured by drowning all the black politicians over 30. That's a remarkable statement there. He was kind of running against the old guard in his day. 
He sure was, and uh, he 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 kept that fiery uh, speech throughout his tenure in Congress as well, and uh, really never stopped uh, uh, being a very forceful spokesman for civil rights and for uh, uh, human rights, for labor, uh, and and welfare. And so uh, it really has been remarkable that he kept, uh, and he was doing it at a time really when liberals uh, were not all that uh, popular, uh, hmm. uh, certainly in Republican Party, but also in the Democratic Party. I'm talking about the 1980s and 90s. And uh, But he kept it up. And people said, well, you've got a safe district. And he said, I made it safe. Hmm. Now, he went back when he was still a civil rights activist, he ran some protests that got a lot of attention, led to some big change. He actually did 112 days in the workhouse. That's the city's medium security institution, a famously sort of hellish place. Um, and this was over these Jefferson Bank protests. Do you think that time in jail helped sort of shape some of that fieriness? Well, I'm sure it, it helped. Uh, you know, uh, at that point uh, uh, in the civil rights struggle, jobs was a huge issue. And uh, and Clay actually sent out a survey of big companies in uh, the area asking them how many uh, black people they, they hired. And the results were, of course, not very many. And he made that really the... Um, the fulcrum of his protests and led protests, uh, was in jail. Uh, he never achieved kind of the national civil rights status of, say, uh, uh, John Lewis, because mm-hmm. the, the protests here in St. Louis just didn't get as much, uh, obviously, national attention as Selma did. But uh, he was certainly, uh, uh, that's really how he got his start in politics. Hmm. Now, you write that he was fond of saying, we have no permanent friends and no permanent enemies, just permanent interests. And you added, more than a few were beginning to suspect that chief among those interests was Bill Clay himself. How did that manifest itself? Well, he certainly was, uh, self-preservation was uh, certainly at the top of his list. Uh, He wanted to keep his... uh, uh, a job in Congress, and he wanted to remain a power in St. Louis politics. And he, so he got back here to St. Louis very often. He had people back here in St. Louis's political uh, machine, so to speak, uh, Pearly Evans and others who helped him to uh, keep that power. So he retired from Congress in 2000. Was it um, was the fix in in terms of everybody knew this seat was going to his son, or was it not that clear cut? Well, it was pretty much. He had paved the way for Lacey uh, in the Missouri legislature. He was a state representative and then a state senator. So uh, it, it, I don't think it surprised anybody that uh, that he would run for the seat. And, and at that point, Bill Clay was still pretty powerful in, in St. Louis and certainly in his district and could make that happen. You know, it's interesting that he was about to ascend to a much more powerful position in Washington around 1994 as, as a chair of the Education and Labor Committee. And um, unfortunately for him, the Republicans, Newt Gingrich and the Republicans, took over the House. So he mm-hmm. never really achieved that uh, power in Washington that he had been looking for. And I think that's one of the, certainly one of the reasons he decided to retire. Hmm. So that was in 2000 uh, that his that he retired. His son won the seat. And joining us today to give us more insight into what happened next is Eli Yokely. He's a Missouri native who works as a political reporter at the Morning Consult in Washington, D.C. So, Eli, welcome to the show. Eli, are you there? Um, I was hoping Eli was hey. there. Oh. 
I'm here. I'm Hi. Here. I, can, I can hear you now. I'm sorry about that. Uh, these remote connections sometimes aren't always what we hope they would be. Um, so, Eli, uh, Lacey Clay goes to Washington, and very recently, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ends up in Congress. He signed on to her Green New Deal. I think that surprised some old-timers. Do you think his politics were in line with the younger, more progressive people coming to Congress? Or do you think he saw them as challengers and kind of wanted to head them off by co-opting them? You know, Lacey Clay is not in a bubble here. I mean, there's a lot of folks here in Washington right now who are facing the same challenge that he is. You talk about Elliot Engel, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. You talk about uh, people like Joe Crowley, who lost to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a very prominent Democratic figure. Um, These people get pretty safe and comfortable in these seats, especially like the uh, the ones that uh, that Congressman Clay was in, and, and don't see some of this stuff coming for them. Um, I mean, look, uh, when you beat somebody by 20 points um, two years ago, uh, uh, you, have, you have a tendency to get a little bit cocky. And you talk to some uh, Democratic strategists up here, um, and that's kind of what they saw that, that happened here. Um, definitely a generational divide in politics right now. It's happening across the country, and especially in a place like St. Louis with so many um, so, so many different issues. Um, this, this idea that she, uh, incremental change versus um, change now that Cori Bush talked about when she talked to you is something that I think is driving a lot of the conversation in Washington right now. Hmm. There's there's a clear divide there. Um, now, we also spoke yesterday to a third reporter, and that's Deirdre Shesgreen. She's now the foreign affairs reporter for USA Today. But before that, she was a chief congressional reporter covering Missouri and Ohio politics. She was at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for about 10 years, and Tim Poor actually recommended we talk to her. Um, so she covered Congressman Clay Sr.'s retirement and Lacey Clay Jr.'s election. She also covered Lacey Clay's first first four terms in Congress. The younger Clay tried to make a contrast with his father right away in that first election. As I recall, he called himself Clay Light, sort of confirming the impression that he was not going to be a heavyweight like his father and not going to be as radical or bring the same kind of gravitas to the job. He did make a big splash in a couple arenas, though. Um, I'll never forget when I was interviewing him about party dues. Um, and this is going to get into a little bit of inside baseball, but it's an interesting practice that both House Republicans and Democrats engage in, in which they're required to give campaign contributions to the House Republican and House Democratic campaign arms. And Clay called that extortion and said he didn't want to pay them. Essentially, he was supposed to raise money for his own account and then turn it over to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And he complained that that money, most of it was spent in swing districts trying to knock off um, Republicans or help vulnerable Democrats, not in safe seats like his own, even if someone like him were to face a tough primary. So even way back then, I think he foresaw the possibility of a primary, and he noted that the House Democratic Campaign Committee would do nothing to help him um, in that kind of circumstance. So his extortion comment did not go over well with Nancy Pelosi at the time. And it kind of echoed his father's habit of not mincing words, not holding back, not being, you know, not shying away from rocking the boat if he thought, you know, if he felt like that was a a good thing to do. And our producer also asked Deirdre Shesgreen yesterday what she would point to as Clay Jr.'s biggest accomplishments or areas of focus. And here's what stood out to her. 
So I think one of the things that um, Clay would cite himself is, is his role in bringing the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency campus to North St. Louis. Um, that was a you know meant a big investment for his um, community and his district, um, bringing a lot of federal dollars and jobs, good jobs, to the area. Um, but he also did focus on a lot of the same things that, that his father did, although in a different time and a different context. Obviously, he fo- you know focused on racial discrimination and in housing and other um, other arenas. And that's Deirdre Shesgreen of USA Today. Now, Eli Yokely, the nickname that has dogged Lacey Clay locally is Lazy Clay. And I've always wondered if that's fair or if that's just such an easy play on his name that people couldn't resist. What's the perception of him as a worker within uh, D.C.? Well, I talked to some folks on the Hill about this yesterday. And, um, you know, Team Clay is very proud of things like the a geospatial agency. They're proud of the money they brought back to the city. They're proud of the environmental work that he did. Um, but his colleagues up there uh, uh, share that view, I think, in the city, um, that there is a, a bit of ineffectiveness um, in his in his, uh, in his legacy, um, and something that I think comes up in the challenges to him. Um, he had seniority, um, but, uh, you know, Corey Bush said to you, that didn't touch people like her. And uh, I think that drove a lot of some of the concerns um, here in Washington about him and back home, back in back in St. Louis, that led to um, um, his loss the other day. Hmm. Tim Poor, you mentioned how um, Bill Clay Sr. always tried so hard or made a real point of coming back to the district often. And that's one of the other things I sometimes will hear people say about Lacey Clay. They just don't see him here as much as, say, they see Cory Bush, who seemed to be at every meeting there for the last two years of even small neighborhood groups. Um, do you think that was really important to Bill Clay in terms of the power he was able to maintain locally, even as he was there in Washington? Oh, absolutely. It was it was really important. And, and when I was doing that story about him, I kind of sat in on some of the meetings he would have when he came back to St. Louis with politicians and people who were running for office or wanted to run for office, just asking for his support. And it was really, uh, it was really an, an incredible expression of the influence that he had here in St. Louis. And I don't think Lacey ever really did that. He didn't grow up really in St. Louis. He grew up in Washington, D.C. area and uh, didn't come back uh, nearly as often, especially in the later years, I think. Hmm. Now, Brendan Rodiger is a law professor at St. Louis University. Coincidentally, he was on our show yesterday. He wrote on Facebook a few days ago that he and a few others met with Lacey Clay in 2014. This is after Michael Brown's death. And he said, we asked for him to be on the side of those in the streets in whatever way he could. He said a lot of ridiculous stuff. But one thing that stuck with me, he said, those people don't vote. Eli, do you think that um, that was part of this miscalculation, that he didn't understand that this protest movement was going to get as big as it did? I think that was part of the original sin here that may have led to what we saw this week. Um, he was not on the ground early in Ferguson. Folks noticed that, and this protest movement has risen up, and, and especially this year. I mean, sort of Cory uh, Bush caught some lightning in the bottle with timing here in terms of the George Floyd and the, the resurgent protests, uh, making this an issue um, four years after Ferguson. Um, definitely a big deal. I was there in Ferguson. People noticed his early absence um, at the time, and it's something that I think probably weighed on uh, perceptions of him. 
Hmm. So, Tim Poor, just time for one last question here. But going back to your remarkable profile of Bill Clay from 1998, I was struck by how much he had in common, not with his son, but with Cori Bush. Do you see that resonance here as, as you were listening to her talking today? Oh, I sure did. Uh, the the energy, the fire, uh, it was all there uh, when Bill Clay uh, got started in Congress. And I think that uh, uh, Cori Bush is, is uh, kind of in that same mold. Now, she doesn't have the um, political experience that he had in terms of city politics. So it'll be interesting to see how she does in Washington and whether she's going to be able to make that change right now that she talked about. Well, Tim Poor, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing that insight. Well, thank you, Sarah. And Eli Yokley, political reporter with The Morning Consult, thank you so much for being here and and, um, for sharing the view from D.C. Yep, good to be here. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.